So we're going to talk about AI rights uh, from a philosophical perspective. I want to start by sort of giving an overview of our entry um, for the handbook. So the first thing we do in the end, this is a big picture sort of chapter view. The first thing we do is articulate why focus on rights at all? Why try to approach the problem of AI ethics from a rights-based perspective? Um, why a rights framework? And then we distinguish between different kinds of rights, moral, legal, and political, because we only care about, it's not true. We might care about other types of rights, but the entry is focused only on one type of rights. Um, and after we do that, after we motivate the rights framework, we articulate what we take to be the most plausible view or family of views about rights, which is called the interest theory. And we try to justify that theory and explain why that's the appropriate theory to deploy. Um, after we do that, we take the interest theory and we say, let's look at what that has to teach us about whether AI, either current AI or future AI, have rights or what they would have to be like in order to generate rights. Um, and that's really the core piece of the chapter. But then we go on to consider sort of the primary al alternative to the interest theory, which is called the will theory. Um, and we examine some potential, uh, we examine whether that theory tells us something different about whether AI are gonna have rights. Um, today, I'm really just gonna focus on these three first bits and really focus on the third bit, examining the potential for AI rights to have, uh, AI to have rights on the interest theory. So we're really gonna focus there. I'm gonna go quickly through the motivation for rights theory um, and explain why we like the interest theory. That's gonna be very brief. Um, I'm happy to talk in more depth about it in the Q&A or bring up Joe to talk about it. That's really his area of expertise. Um, really the talk is gonna be about how to deploy the rights theory and what it teaches us. And here are the aims of the talk. Um, we want to defend a largely skeptical position about AI as rights bearers uh, against the background of the rights of the interest theory. So we're going to say it's just not very plausible that AI are going to have rights. Um, we're primarily focused on machine learners, but I'll have something to say about other types of AI. Uh, we want to identify some challenges to our argument and what we sort of have to say about those challenges. And then I'll just sketch how the rest of the entry is organized to address those challenges and point out some of our main themes. Okay. So first, what kind of rights are we talking about? In the chapter, we distinguish between moral, legal, and political rights. I'm gonna set aside political rights for the purposes of today's talk because explaining the difference between political and legal rights requires us to do a bunch of technical stuff in political philosophy on having to do with Rawls and political legitimacy. It's just not, it's a lot of work. But I'm happy to talk about that again in the Q&A. Uh, so I just wanna talk about the difference between moral and legal rights for now. So it's, it's easy, it's hard to say what a moral right is. It's easy to say what it is not. Um, uh, it's not a legal right, which a legal right we take to be plausibly the kind of thing that you are conferred by a particular government or the state or a particular kind of institution. Whether you have a right in the legal sense uh, is a function of actual institutions that exist. Now, there are some theories of legal rights that aren't like that, in which sense legal and moral rights end up being the same thing, but um, we're explicitly not concerned with the kind of things you get just via institutions. Um, that you're actually granted by institutions. Instead, a moral right is a kind of claim that I have against you that you treat me a certain way. It's not grounded in whether a particular state has granted it to me or not. I sort of have it in virtue of the kind of being that I am. Um, and we'll say more about that. We don't want to beg any questions about what the right normative theory is. So it's not that you couldn't have some intersubjective account of why you have rights. Um, but it's not grounded in any particular decisions of, of the government of Toronto, for example. So we're focused on that kind of right. I think people probably have an intuitive sense of what those are. Um, and we'll flesh that out a little bit in saying what we think the right theory of rights is. The right theory of rights, that's confusing. Uh, why rights? I just wanna sketch quickly some of the reasons rights talk is important. And I wanna start by mentioning some pragmatic considerations. Um, just so happens that much of our moral discourse takes the forms of rights discourse. 
Uh, there's the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, the GDPR has, includes this right to be forgotten, and that's a sort of modern context where we're discussing rights in AI. Um, so it just seems like a lot of the discussions are going to happen in terms of rights, so it's a useful thing to think about whether or not to clarify for public discourse whether or not AI are, the, are properly rights bearers. We already saw today that citizenship has been granted to an artificially intelligent system, uh, which is largely just a machine learning or language processing system. Um, and so being able to explain whether or not it really makes sense to attribute that thing moral rights fits into a discourse that's already happening. Um, second, there's a, a fact, a seemingly plausible, so this is the kind of thing philosophers, there's a seemingly plausible fact that I don't just have obligations, but I have obligations to particular people um, it's not just that I have duties, but I have duties to you. Sometimes I just have duties, but sometimes I have duties to you. And rights, rights frameworks can really explain why that's true. For utilitarians, there's no real thing as a direct duty. Your duty is just to the world to bring about more of this good stuff. Um, but that's not really how we think about morality. Uh, we think about, am I having obligations to you? So that's, there's this directedness of duties. Um, we also sometimes think there's something about my duties or your duties to me or my duties to you such that I am justified in preempting you from treating me a certain way uh, or enforcing my rights after the fact or sorry, enforcing something after the fact, making you pay some fee for, for, for failing in your duty to me. And rights provides a expl nice explanation for why that's the case. If you're a utilitarian and I do some action that is bad, it's wrong by utilitarian standards, there's no entailment that afterwards I'm, you're owed some kind of recompensation. A compensation, right? It's just you got to ask, does it maximize utility? And it might not. Um, but we think that there's some sense in which no compensation is due, and rights theory can capture that. Uh, we also think that um, there's a certain way in which when I'm being figured in or when you're being figured into moral deliberations, it's I just don't get to do what I want to you any time the net consequences are better. So there's a certain sense in which rights explain the utility trumpeting or utility resisting thoughts in our moral calculations. Right? You don't just do a simple calculation. If I'm going to override some duty I have to you, the consequences have to be really important. Right? So maybe I'm allowed to do something really bad to you if it saves the world's entire population. But um, there's a certain sense in which, going to the trolley problem, it does seem wrong to push the large person off the bridge to stop the train. And that can get explained in terms of rights in ways that it can't by alternative theories. We can talk about that all in detail. That's not a deep theoretical defense of the rights framework. It's just an explanation of uh, sort of the part of the chapter that we're focused on motivating rights theory. So now I want to transition to the particular theory or family of theories of rights that we like, which is called the interest theory. Uh, the, an interest theory of rights is any theory on which there's an essential connection between having interests and having rights. What it means to have an interest is to have the, I'm the if I have an interest, I'm the kind of being that my life can go better or poorly depending on whether I get something. That's all it means to have an interest. We're not assuming yet anything about my interest being tied to my cognitive capacities, though we'll get to that. Um, uh, it's just any theory on which my rights are connected to my welfare or my interests. Um, so uh, here's an example of a sort of rights-based theory. Uh, I, have a, I have a right that my co-author not hit me. Um, grounded in the fact that I have an interest in not being hit. So in order to say that I have a right against Joe, that's Joey's over there, you can't see him, um, that he not hit me is to say that I have a welfare interest that's strong enough or sufficient, su of sufficient weight to place Joe under a duty not to hit me. So I have a welfare interest, There's some, it's bad for me to be hit, um, and that interest is strong enough to ground a duty in Joe to not hit me. That's a, an example of the interest theory, it's semi-intuitive. Um, okay. 
Why the interest theory? Why do we like it? Well, we like it for a couple reasons. One, it really explains the directedness of duties. Why is it that I have obligations to you? It's because it's your welfare at stake. It's your welfare that's grounding the obligations. So like we said, it seems like we have duties to particular people, and the interest theory can explain why. Secondly, it really helps to explain our comparative, um, the comparative strength of different rights that we have. So I take it, it sounds plausible to me that I have a right against you breaking promises that you make to me, and I also have a right that you not kill me. But they're not the same strength. If you have to choose between the two, I hope you think it's obvious that you should lie to me rather than kill to me or break, break a promise to me rather than kill me. And we can explain that using the interest theory because my interest in staying alive is a lot stronger than my interest in having my promises kept. Now, maybe you can cook up an example where it would be better to break the promise than, uh, than it, would be, it would be worse to break the promise than to kill me. But then what you're going to be doing is explaining why my interest in having the promise kept is greater than my interest in being kept alive. Um, so it does a nice job explaining why rights have different strengths. That's just a quick overview of our motivations. Now we get to the sort of meat of the talk, which is how the interest theory applies to AI rights. So um, on the interest theory, it's a necessary condition for AI having rights that they have interests or a welfare or a well-being. And this brings us immediately to the question of what grounds interests or welfare. Um, uh, and we sort of try to solve this problem from that perspective by thinking about like, what does it mean to ground welfare and then do AI have the kinds of capacities that ground a welfare? Um, and we largely want to argue that they just don't meet the bar or most of them aren't going to meet the bar or the conditions for their meeting the bar are difficult to ascertain. Um, there are many different theories of welfare, uh, but we just want to make a simple distinction between subjectivist theories and objectivist theories of welfare. A subjective theory or a subjectivist theory of welfare is any on which at minimum conscious is required to, consciousness is required to have a welfare. And usually it's a bit more than consciousness. It depends on your particular theory. So mentalistic theories are those that it's tied to particular uh, capacity for enjoyment or suffering or sentience, pain and pleasure. Whereas satisfaction, it's a, a different kind of mental capacity. You have to have capacity for desires, explicit ways you want the world to be, or preferences, the ability to compare two states of affairs. We, don't have, we can set all that stuff aside. What's required for every subjectivist view of welfare is that the being be conscious. In contrast, ob on objectivist views of welfare, um, there's at least some interest that beings have that has nothing to do with their having mental life. They don't have to have a mental life at all. Um, okay, so we're gonna start on the sort of subjectivist side and try to argue that AI don't have rights by appealing to a subjectivist theory of welfare. So let's just focus on subjectivism. Well, the question then becomes, if AI are gonna have rights, they gotta be the kind of thing that have the lights on. They gotta have what we call, philosophers call qualia, which is just a fancy way of like, there's a way, to, there's a way the world is to you. Um, and so we can approach the question just by asking that. And we're gonna try to argue that uh, it's not very plausible that they do have the lights on. Maybe this is just intuitive to most of you, but we'll see. Um, before I can make the argument that AI don't have consciousness, um, I have to check in to make sure, part of the argument relies on some details about what machine learning algorithms are. How many people sort of really know how machine learning works? And I don't mean you can do it. Uh, I can't do it, but like know that some of the, okay, I'm, okay. Well, I'll, I'll do a quick overview. So we can distinguish traditional algorithms from machine learning algorithms. Um, uh, in the following way. So how many people know about the Chinese room thought experiment? Okay, so this is a famous thought experiment where 
Um, it's a, it's a meant to test our view about what makes a system conscious. But basically, someone writes a book of translations from inputs and outputs from one Chinese character to another. So someone comes up to the Chinese room from the outside and they input a character in Chinese. Someone inside who speaks and understands no Chinese then goes through the books, looks for that input, grabs the relevant output from a pile, and sends it out. And so this person, we can assume, is just really fast at finding through the entries, and they output. Basically, you can feel like you're having a conversation with them in Chinese. But every book is handwritten. Every input is specified to a particular output. That is a traditional algorithm. That's just what a tradition, how traditional programming works. You specify every output. You don't have to. There's a sense in which, well, we can talk about it. You don't have to know what the particular output's going to be, but you specify by hand how you're going to get to the output. A programmer does. Machine learning, you can think a lot more. How many people have trained a dog before? It's a lot more like training a dog. You just, you, you uh, well, reinforcement's a lot. Reinforcement learning, which is a lot of machine learning, is like training a dog. You don't have, I wish you did, you don't have any direct way to just program in commands to your dog so that when you say sit, it sits. Instead, you guide its behavior and you reward it when it does the thing you want. And what you hope it's doing is building an algorithm that goes from sit to sit. But if you've trained a dog, you'll know that what it's really learning is something like, when I say sit in my house, it's going to do it. But when I try to do it at the dog park, it is not going to do it. That's not the, so it doesn't have the algorithm you want. Machine learners are, in some sense, more impressive than dogs because you get way more, you get more training data, and so they're, they're better at applying it in other contexts. Um, but that's the way to think, I think, a useful way to think of the difference between traditional algorithms and machine learning algorithms. That is to say, it's useful to think about the difference in uh, traditional and machine learning algorithms in terms of etiology or how they come about. But what is not different is what they are. A traditional algorithm and a machine learning algorithm, the thing that they are in the world, they're just the same kind of thing. So you have just as much reason to believe that a machine, the results of a machine learning algorithm are conscious that you do that a traditional algorithm is conscious. There's no difference in metaphysical kind. It's just who made the algorithm is different. In one, we had a traditionally programmed algorithm that produced its own algorithm. But, and in the other case, we produced the algorithm. But there's no sort of inherent difference. So, you have as much reason to think that a machine learning algorithm is conscious as a traditional algorithm is conscious, and now I'll just say something like, I don't think most of you think traditional algorithms are conscious. Otherwise, let me tell you, the practice of playing video games is extremely immoral. Um, uh, and we're going to revisit that assumption in just a minute. So here's a sort of summary of our argument. Um, AI are rights bearers only if they have a welfare or interest that are sufficiently weighty to ground rights. That just follows from the interest theory. Um, AI have a welfare interest that is or are sufficiently weighted to ground rights only if they're conscious, but given the argument I just gave, they're not conscious, so they're not rights bearers. Now, obviously, there are, there are premises here for an argument. It's, it's valid, so we can't attack the form, which is nice. Um, but we can attack any of these premises. You can challenge the interest theory. I'm not going to take up that objection. That's the part of the chapter dedicated to the will theory of rights and saying, hey, some people don't like this interest theory. Let's look at this alternative theory and see what it says. Um, but I will talk a little bit about um, uh, premise two and premise three, and mostly premise three. Um, so let's start with, with premise three. AI are not conscious. Um, there are roughly two ways you could resist that premise. You could say, hey, John and Joe, you're using a very restrictive notion of consciousness. You're building in this implicit assumption that consciousness re requires these robust mechanisms. Um, but you might hold a very different view of consciousness. You might be a behaviorist, so that there is no real such thing as consciousness. It's just it's captured by behavior. Or you might be a minimalist and think uh, information processing is really all that's required for consciousness. Or you might be an eliminativist. You might think there's no such thing as consciousness. It's all an illusion. Um, 
I hope you don't think that. Uh, maybe you're a philosophical zombie if you think that. Alternatively, another way to criticize premise three is to just say, John and Joe, you're using too restrictive a notion of AI. You're focused on machine learning algorithms. That's the core of your argument is that machine learning algorithms look a lot like traditional algorithms, and so you have no reason to treat them differently. But there are things besides machine learning. There's advanced general intelligence. There's strong AI. Um, there's brain emulation. I don't know if people know about the stuff at the Allen Institute. They're trying to simulate neural systems. They're trying to translate every single neuron in a mouse brain and a human brain into a computer system. And that's a different kind of AI. So what do you have to say about that? Um, so we'll take up, we sort of take in the chapter, we take up both of these kinds of objections and try to respond to them. Um, we're going to acknowledge right from the start that we don't have an answer to the hard problem of consciousness. Uh, and in virtue of that, because we don't have an answer to the hard problem of consciousness, we don't really have a good theory of what would even count as good evidence that an AI system is conscious. So when I make inferences that people in this room are conscious, that inference is grounded in sort of three sorts of evidence, um, or two sorts of evidence linked by this third thing, which is you behave a lot like me, and I take it that if I were to do a brain scan of you or cut you open, you'd have a lot of stuff similar to me. So I know I'm conscious, you behave a lot like me, you physically, physiologically are a lot like me, and perhaps most importantly, we're evolutionarily, evolutionarily very closely related. Like we exist in the same node of the tree. And so it'd be weird if somehow I got this trait and you were exactly very similar to me and you didn't have this trait. And we can use that kind of inference as we go down the tree. So like. Should I think that birds or other mammals are conscious? Well, they're fit, they have a lot of the same physiological structures, they behave in a lot of the same ways, and they're pretty closely related. By the time you get to things that are evolutionarily distantly related, it's a lot harder to infer from behavior and physiology that they're conscious. Um, this is why octopi are so fascinating, because they exist on a very distant branch of the tree, and yet they have these really complex behaviors. The case of AI is much harder, because they're not on the evolutionary tree of life at all. They're not physiologically like us at all, and their behaviors screen off the evidential value of those behaviors, because they're programmed to have the behaviors. So you can't tell whether they're sort of coming from some internal system or whether they've been programmed to have it. So like all our sources of evidence when it comes to AI are diminished. Uh, so uh, how, how, why are we so confident that AI are not conscious given these limitations? Um, well, we actually think it's because of these limitations that it's okay to treat AI as not conscious. And here's how this argument goes. It's a practical kind of argument. Without a view about what consciousness is um, and some view about how we accrue evidence about what the interests of a things are, um, it's entirely rational. It, it would be entirely irrational to identify what its particular interests are. So let's, uh, let's say I'm wrong and really this laptop in front of me is conscious. Is it, does it have an interest in me waving at it or not? Standing here or not? Like, we have no way to tell. And so for all practical purposes, we have no idea how we would even respect the rights of the system. And so in that kind of context, we can be entirely excused for our failures to treat robots respectfully or AI respectfully. Like, if you can't know possibly how to treat it or what's good or bad for it, you're excused from fa your failures. Um, so that's, so we think that the fact that we're in a bad epistemic position actually motivates or can motivate a case for being skeptical about AI interests. Okay, um, what about non-ML AI? What about sort of AGI? Um, it's, it's really hard to assess. It's, we don't really know what to say about AGI, again, in the absence of a theory of consciousness, but we think the argument runs very similarly. Um, you've, AGI is described in lots of different ways. So sometimes people, when they posit AGI, they just posit that it's conscious. And fine, if we know that the thing is conscious, then it's gonna have, and it's 
conscious like us. It's going to have interests like us and presumably rights like us. Um, but that's not the situation we're going to be in. And some people, the way they describe AGI is just an algorithm that's better at, at achieving certain behavioral tasks than us, or it can do general tasks. It's not just program per task. Yeah. Yeah, it's just artificial general intelligence. So now you, you design a machine learner for a specific task. AGI is task agnostic. Um, and there's talk about like uh, advanced AG, or AGIs that are sort of way more efficient at solving problems than us. Um, but in that case, that's, that doesn't speak to us. It doesn't tell us that it's conscious. And we think because you couldn't figure out what its preferences are, unless you define its preferences just in terms of whatever its goals are, which we'll talk about that in a minute, um, you don't really have any thought, you don't have any clear picture of what its interests are. In the case of brain simulations, I think it's a lot easier task um, unless you have some really good reason for thinking consciousness has to be embodied in gray matter or whatever, is in, whatever that stuff is in our brain, someone can tell me later. I don't know anything about the world. Um, uh, it does seem like if you're simulating brain, you have to at least take care or make the assumption that you're simulating consciousness. Um, so yeah, we're a little more open to the idea that brain simulations have a welfare and maybe that's a reason not to do them and we can talk about that, that more later. Um, okay, alternative objection. Uh, so those are the objections that AI are not conscious, that we're either failing to understand what consciousness is appropriately or we're failing to assess the right technologies. Um, but you can also assess premise two, which says that AI have a welfare interest that are sufficiently weighted grant rights only if they're conscious. So you might be an objectivist about welfare. And I think there are actually good reasons to be an objectivist about welfare. Um, it seems extremely plausible to me that you can harm a tree or you can make a tree's life worse off. There's a certain sense in which weed killer is bad for weeds. Um, and it's not because it's, it, it, that can only be explained by the weeds welfare. Because weed killer is good for weeds in the sense, if we were talking about my welfare. I'm not really a gardener, but I'm told that you're supposed to get rid of weeds. Um, uh, and so if you find it compelling that plants have a welfare and you're pretty confident that they're not conscious, although I, every time I teach a class in environmental ethics, some student always tells me that plants are conscious, then we have to go through the whole literature on nociception and things like that, so I'm glad. Uh, Judith already talked about that. Um, uh, you, so you have compelling reasons to think there's some component of welfare, perhaps, that's not grounded in consciousness. Okay. Um, and uh, you'll just have to take my word for this that we develop it in the chapter. In, in the environmental ethics literature, there's a real contingent of people that want to defend this idea that you do not need sentience for welfare. They, this view called biocentrism is the view that all living things have a welfare and are thereby due moral status. And so they've got to be thinking about welfare in some terms that have nothing to do with consciousness. And here, I think, is the, this is the standard account, and I also think it's the only and best account of non-sentient welfare. It's called a teleological account of welfare. Roughly on a teleological account of welfare, what makes your life go well is that you achieve your ends. So something benefits you to the extent that it promotes your ends, and it harms you to the extent that it frustrates your ends. And by frustrate, I don't mean some cognitive thing, just prevents you from achieving them. Um, so there's some interesting questions about um, uh, whether or not um, we can really make sense of teleology and non-sentient organisms, it seems to presuppose, uh, seems to presuppose some anti-Darwinian conception of creation because how do plants get ends when they're just naturally of all things? I actually think there are really good stories to tell about that. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to do that. But what seems clear is you don't need a diff it's not a difficult story to talk about the ends of artifacts. They're clearly teleologically organized. Now, maybe you think they're only derivative, but this laptop clearly has ends. It's got an antivirus system, then its end is to prevent the computer from shutting down due to malware. Um, so, um, 
We can draw on these teleological notions of welfare in the environmental literature to try to give an objective account of the welfare of non-sentient artifacts like machine learning systems. Um, and in doing so, maybe you can derive AI rights from that. We don't think so. Um, I have to give you the short version of the arguments because I don't want to take up too much time. Um, and you have to pardon the little bit of self-promotion. Uh, I spent a lot of time in this book trying to argue that plants do in fact have a welfare and so do artifacts like artificially intelligent systems. Um, but that, uh, that welfare is irrelevant from the moral point of view. So the part, one of the themes of the book is that, well, there is a real sense in which these things can be benefited or harmed, but you just when you're thinking about the, your moral obligations, they just don't figure in at all. And I'm gonna give you a summary of that argument. Uh, this book came out today. Um, you shouldn't buy it, it's like $80, unfortunately, but um, here's the argument. There is no subjective interest of humans so trivial that we should opt to frustrate it solely because doing so would preserve or promote the objective interests of an AI system. That's just a long way of saying, here's, here's the, there is no machine learning system that has some goals such that even if I just trivially want to frustrate those goals, I shouldn't do it. So there's an AI system that's designed to sort of keep itself running. Let's just say, like its utility function is to do whatever, it's an mal anti-malware system to protect itself, and I just want to shut it off because I want to move it to the other side of the room for five minutes. There's no moral obligation that holds against that, that I shouldn't do that. So what that teaches us, um, premise two, if that's true, then uh, the objective interest of AI cannot ground any rights. Because a right has to, there has to be a welfare interest that's weighty enough to ground the right, but if there's no possible interest of an AI system that would stop me from moving it across the room, then it just can't be said to have welfare interest that ground rights. So therefore, the objective interest of AI do not ground any rights. Uh, just to summarize, that was just sort of the first three sections of the paper and a sketch of the arguments. I'm happy to talk to them, talk about them in more detail. Um, the general conclusions that we want to draw are that questions of the moral rights of AI are going to be tightly tied to questions of welfare and questions of consciousness. Uh, and we think carefully about those questions of welfare and questions of consciousness. It justifies a pretty skeptical view. Um, and another point we try to draw out in the end of the chapter is that the hardest right-based rights -based issues are actually gonna be epistemological. It's easy to understand the metaphysics of rights and why, they, why an ML system doesn't have rights. It's gonna be much harder to tell when we have these advanced AI systems that are behaving in really robust ways, how we make judgments about them. And so the real hard work we think is the epistemology of rights how, or the epistemology of welfare. Um, and so we try to highlight how solving the problem of what rights are and what an ML system would have to look like or an AI system would have to look like to have them is only half the battle. Then we have to really do the hard epistemology. Thanks.